0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Okay, so yesterday, uh, there was a fascinating scene at the Supreme Court. Uh, 36 people or 34 people were arrested for blocking traffic in a protest against the Dobbs abortion decision. Of those 34 people, 17 were members of Congress. Uh, I did the math, so of course, that's 50% of the arrestees are members of Congress. Would you like to know the number of congressmen in the United States versus the population of the United States, it's 0.0001%. So 50% of the arrestees at a demonstration, 0.0001% of the population are congressmen. um, And about half an hour after the arrests, uh, I get a fundraising email from Carolyn Maloney, the congressman from New York who is locked in a primary battle with her fellow Manhattan Congressman Jerry Nadler as a result of redistricting uh, in 2020.
1: AOC also sent out an immediate fundraising plea based on the so-called arrest. So, um, so what we have here is, uh, and of course
0: the, the thing that uh, went around the world was the um, invisible handcuffing of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who put her arms behind her back as she was being arrested, and Ilhan
2: Omar, uh,
0: and Ilhan? So both of them, yes, uh, put their arms around, behind their backs, uh, though they were not actually being handcuffed, and um, so they were uh, mimicking uh,
3: the handcuffing uh, and. Uh, What do you make of it? I have a sanguine take on this because there were a lot of journalists who looked at this display and took in exactly what uh, AOC and Ilan Omar wanted them to take in, that they were being detained, um, even though they were clearly not handcuffed and were walking away from the scene unescorted by police, is that journalists have a, a much more sanguine understanding of our of our social conventions. Our our social norms are so thick that you can arrest yourself, you'll just wander off into custody unescorted, because that's what's expected of you. Um, it's the it's a, a hopeful note on the state of the, of the country and uh, and says a lot of good things about our future.
1: See, I think it was I, I actually like that take because it's very counterintuitive. I, I I have a much more cynical take, uh, which is that they were all just doing it for the gram, right? I mean, this is just they were doing it to become instant social media. Uh, uh, stars yet again to um, mainly to fundraise. In the case of AOC and Maloney and the others, who'll put it out there, they were taking selfies with the officers who were processing them. Who who actually just escorted them over to the to a shady tree to make sure they were okay. They were posing for pictures. And it, the whole thing was obviously planned, and and they they're like Civil War reenactors. Like they show up in their costume and they have they know the moves. They know exactly what to do. And and the media completely bought it. They just like look at this is so so brave so stunning. Um, I think most people looked at it and just rolled their eyes because, first of all, the, the justices are gone for the summer. There's nobody there. So what? Would, it was clearly a publicity stunt. And I, I noted that at the same time they were doing that, there a piece appeared in The Washington Post yesterday or the day before, uh, people who live in uh, Brett Kavanaugh's Chevy Chase Maryland neighborhood who are very, very much concerned about abortion rights, they're very liberal, and they're sick to death of all the loud, picketing, often vulgar protests that have been going on in front of the justices house. So I to contrast those two things, the one that was clearly modeled and created for the sake of social media clout versus the real pro, you know, people who actually are turning up and harassing justices at, at their private residences, even the abortion people are sick of that.
3: To be clear, I, I was joking. Say, I should it's say hold on. I on.
0: that they were I <laughs> Okay. I need to say, because I forgot to say it that this podcast is being brought to you in part by the Good Faith Effort podcast, about which more in due course. Um, Can I? Abe, please. Jump in here. I think um, members of
2: Congress protesting the government uh, on Capitol Hill is the sort of the perfect image of, of the, the state of the Democrats and, and of, End of end of the hill generally these days. Um you are you are the government. It is it is it would be like us uh writing letters to the editor of commentary. Um
0: well you know you know this is an interesting point because there is a psychotic and I say that advisedly a psychotic Twitter thread today or yesterday by the research, one of the researchers or archivists at the New Yorker magazine, Erin Overby, uh, who apparently is in some personnel trouble at the New Yorker, uh, doing a thirty tweet 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 stream tweet revenge thing uh, against her editor David Remnick uh, uh, because apparently he once said to her when she uh, had a good open her a lot of people opened her newsletter said, great kid, now don't get cocky, which is, of course, a line from Star Wars. She has a 30-tweet hysterical rant about how this is, you know, sexism and she's, you know, this is terrible and everything is awful about her. And she's still working there. So I bring this up only to say, since you mentioned it's like us writing letters to the editor of commentary, that this is now standard behavior among a certain cohort of um. Progressives. Like they believe that it is their right and do, and it's a proper behavior to um, protest, to make public protests from inside their places of work. And the federal government of the United States is the place of work of Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Pressley, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Carolyn Maloney, Cori Bush, and uh, Andy Levin, and whoever else got arrested yesterday at the Supreme Court while they're attempting to fundraise. It is a very interesting development that this is now where protest has gone, that protest has now gone to the idea that you are supposed to make public performative breaks with norms where you work or, or with what you do. And the idea on the one hand, you can see how this might seem brave, right? It seems brave because you're, you know, you you can't use normal re- regular channels to do things when something has, you know, the breach is just too horrible. And on the other hand, it is a, uh, it is purely performative, right? It's not about anything other than yourself. It's not about the institution. It's not, it's really
1: about you. Well, and it's not brave because it's their job to legislate. If they really cared this much about abortion rights, they would have codified Roe a long time ago. That's why I actually don't think that, I mean, they think they're brave, but they're really not because it's even worse than just complaining about your boss you know, publicly. It's, it's literally, it's their job to do this stuff if they care that deeply. I mean, right. It's like what we talked about yesterday. If you really care and think this is a crisis, you do something. They were performing. It was actually extremely efficient for fundraising purposes. They're out there for an hour. They get their pictures. They send out their fundraisers. They don't have to sit around and chit chat at a a, you know terrible cocktail party i mean as a fundraising tool it's it's very effective
2: but also you know to to that point it's like well if you if you don't want to lose battles uh and and if you and if you want to win then stop being a protester, stop being a social media influencer
0: and do your job okay well here's another here's a larger point that i wanted to bring up which is that um There is this idea abroad in the land. It has been abroad in the land since the 1960s, which is that protest is the highest form of democracy. Being a protester is how in a democracy you affect change. This is, of course, utter barbaric nonsense. The way you affect change in a democracy or a republic or whatever you want to call it is participation. It is involvement. It is getting your hands on the innards of things. It is trying to make arguments that you win. When there are massive protests about certain kinds of things, certainly before the internet era, uh, they were designed precisely to be photo ops, to say here is a gigantic crowd of people, 500,000 people, a million people who have gathered together to say that they do not like the Vietnam war or they are upset about the condition of civil rights in the United States. The purpose of that is was to create an event, to create a photo op in the days when it was very hard to create a photo op. There was no such thing, people didn't really have them. It was sort of nascent and so on 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 certain, you know, stark and dramatic occasions, there would be these amazing displays of human, just massive human involvement, you know, human participation in a, you know, in a, in a once in a lifetime event. Um, That is not necessary anymore. And a lot of these protests from Black Lives Matter onward may have had, you know, a certain political effect, but they also have the effect of being really, 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 uh, you know, we call it disruptive, right? So what what, what happened yesterday at the Supreme Court when they all got arrested? What were they doing? Why were they arrested? They were arrested for blocking traffic. Did they have to block traffic? No. Why did they block traffic? To break the law to get arrested. This was not civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is refusing to obey a law that you think is unjust. It is not seeking to break the law in order to get yourself in a picture with two cops well, on either and that, side of
1: you i just have to say about that picture in particular aoc she has this uh, she has the smile the duper's delight is what it's called when it's a when it's sort of like a narcissist or someone who's kind of sociopathic but she looks ex- right at the cameras and gives this real smirk that's like haha see now i've done it i've gotten myself arrested it was obviously it, it, i mean it's kind of i found it appalling but she is, that's her That's her thing. That is what she represents. She's a celebrity. She's a social media celebrity. She, she's not a legislator. She doesn't care about the institution. She cares about her own platform. So that smile, I think, should be the best fundraiser for Republicans over the next few months if they want to, if they're smart about it. But Abe, is, I think Abe makes a, a
0: very important point, which is they already have a job. They are each of those people is one of 535 people in the entire United States who makes laws. So they, are already, they have already submitted themselves to the participation doctrine that I am. They ran for election, they got themselves elected. They are in this body of people who make laws that change the world and change America and govern America. And they're not interested in it. The purpose of being there is to get a photo op when you get arrested and not to, like, learn how to do markup, Uh, negotiate during a conference to harmonize the House bill with the Senate bill. Right. I mean, every, you know, it's like it's already a cliche to point out Yuval Levin's point that, you know, institutions in America used to mold people and now they are platforms for people. People use them to uh, to advance their own brands rather than be shaped by the rules that they are supposed to enter. They're supposed to follow in them that will elevate them to a higher level and 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 help them affect the kind of change that they want to affect um but it is uh, this is the most the starkest example of that right we every time we cite Yuval or people cite Yuval they're talking about you know Matt Gaetz who is only doing this to get on Fox right or something like that they just want to get on cable TV and talk this is even crazier than that as I say they're not affecting civil disobedience they are violating a law, breaking a law in order to create an event in which they can get arrested. They're not even arrested for protesting. Abortion, uh, you know, the abortion decision, they're getting arrested for blocking traffic. For blocking traffic, they're not even getting arrested unjustly because they're assembling and some, you know, redneck sheriff says that they, you know, they're, they're, they're disturbing the peace. But of course, the Constitution allows you freedom of assembly. And so it's the it's the just the the, the sheriff who has shown up as the scofflaw and not the protester. And also, I just
2: want to say this, regarding Christine's point about AOC smile. Um, they're having the time of their lives. This is a blast. That's that's like the, the one of the more offensive things about this. Um, this is just your party. That we're all supposed to care about. Um, even, you know, let's say we're on the complete other side of, of, of the question itself about the Dobbs decision. Um, if you're truly sort of anxious and panic stricken about the future of the country and women's rights, and you've got AOC beaming ear to ear, you know, posing for, for for pictures after her her, her triumphant non handcuffed arrest. Um, what do you think of this? Does this this mean something to you? Mean some, something useful? Something important?
0: Well, it, it's like, no. Let me let me let me ask you this. So you know how the whole thing is? We need fighters. Got to fight. I want someone who's a fighter, right? So you know there this uh, there was this election. There was a primary election yesterday in, in Maryland. You know a sort of MAGA person beats a Larry Hogan. You know work within the system you know, be a Republican governor in a Democratic state kind of thing. And of course, what was the main issue is that this Baga uh, person would fight as opposed to, you know, uh, go along or be part of the system. But even that, this is this is a lie. They don't fight. They're not fighters. It's not what fighting is. You know, the, well, the word fight has, has achieved a kind of, I don't know, pornographic quality, like, it's like they fight. What, what is Marjorie Taylor Greene fighting? What is Matt Gaetz? What is AOC fighting for all that? The fight is The fight is like, you know, like I say, like having an argument in a room that no one is paying attention to face to face with somebody who doesn't want to have this codicil entered in to the legislation that you're trying to negotiate with the Senate. That's a fight. That's a real fight. These are it's just a, public performances. It's wrestling. Exactly. That's exactly what
2: it is. You know what this reminds me of now that we're talking about it? It was like it's like AOC wearing the tax the rich dress to the Met Gala. What a fight that was.
3: Yeah, it's I mean, we're confusing having an objective and achievable aims and tactics to achieve those aims with irascibility and provoking the people you think deserve to be provoked. Um, That's sort of what they mean by fight, is just not going along to get along. And there's something to be said, I suppose, for pugnacity as a personality trait, but that's all we're talking about is personality traits, not legislative affairs, not electoral outcomes, not reforms, not strategy, not tactics, just personalities. Um, And personalities are actually quite boring. Frankly, uh, they don't do it for me. They don't advance any particular objective, uh, nothing that anybody will remember in 10, 20 years. Uh, they're just uh, ephemera, but ephemera that captures the news cycle.
1: Well, and it, it, When she does want to talk about policy, uh, Ocasio-Cortez in particular, you know, the, the constant refrain during her first year in Congress was, oh, I mean, I know she's on social media all the time, but you should see her in hearings. Oh, she's so smart in hearings. She really isn't like, I mean, her staff sort of prepared her. But when when you push past the opening one or two questions in any interview she does or in any hearing, she's really just not She's pretty thin on substance. But she also opens herself up. I think Noah's absolutely right. If you make your personality your political platform, then you're you're you do open yourself up to charges that a politician who keeps his or her nose down and just does the job doesn't. And the main one is hypocrisy. It's a woman who, you know, she was getting really egregiously and obnoxiously catcalled the other day on the on the steps of of the Capitol, and you know she basically accused. She, this spiraled into her accusing the Capitol Hill police of uh, an. Inside job on January 6th. I mean, she completely lost it. Meanwhile, she voted against any additional protections for the Supreme Court justices' families who were who were literally threatened with assassination. So that's where it is fair to start attacking the hypocrisy of the behavior of these sorts of politicians because they invited in. They invite you into their lives. They want you to judge them based on their personalities and instead of their actual policy achievements. So then they're going to be hypocrites. They are going to be called out for it. And then that the cycle, I think John's right. This fuels a cycle of, of attention seeking that, that really is pretty detrimental well, let's to talk actually about, getting something.
3: done. Let's talk about Larry Hogan for a second, because he's become a particular thorn in the side of a, a sort of Republican who fits within the rubric of MAGA. Um, and it's entirely personality based because he, he really uh, he doesn't let you forget the things that are making Republicans uh, unappealing to voters in the middle of the country, outside the primary electorate on the Republican side. Um, and they rejected, they rejected his, uh, his handpicked successor, as a state official, Kelly Schultz, in favor of Dan Cox, who's not going to win. Uh, he's a terrible fit for the bluest state in the country as a Republican. Um, he's declared his fealty to the, the set of myths myths about the 2020 election that have become something of a litmus test for pro-Trump Republicans, only insofar as they don't want to embarrass themselves by being confronted with the things that they want to ignore. Um, and so they have decided to lose. It's not fighting, it's losing. It's losing nobly. It's, it's sort of a lost cause situation, um, which has some romance to it, a, a romance that's kind of native to the Republican um, disposition. Uh, but nevertheless, one that hamstrings it when your objective is to win elections. But winning elections isn't the goal. It's to be as disruptive a figure as possible to the people who you want to see disrupted. And losing is is actually advances that cause more than, than winning it, because winning involves compromise. But, you, but, you,
0: but you're not going to lose. You're not going to lose, because according to the doctrine now, you never lose. You only lose if the election is stolen. <laughs> because... You know the public is actually with you, and they've 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 rigged the system, and so there is no such thing as a loss. So that's the interesting uh, codicil to this, which is that, uh, and, and maybe this can uh, move into what we wanted to uh, talk about yesterday uh, at the end of the podcast, which is this whole question of the legitimacy crisis uh, in the United States um, and and where 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 it comes from. But before we do that, I want to talk to you guys about. Um, our first advertiser, uh, the uh, Good Faith Effort Podcast. Just give me a second here. Um, uh, The Good Faith Effort Podcast is brought to you by uh, historian, rabbi, and pop culture aficionado Ari Lam, uh, who brings up the fact that the Bible has played played a pretty important role in American society, from our politics to our pop culture, from the founders to today. But how? how? How does it play this role? That is the subject of the Good Faith Effort podcast, brings on new guests each week from the world of politics, history, music, movies, faith, even venture capital, to host the kind of conversations you literally will not hear anywhere else. You want to hear a story and explain how the Talmud played a decisive role in political philosophy during the English Civil War, or how a legendary hip-hop exec sees uh, Abraham and the book of Genesis in a way that causes him to interpret the work of Run-DMC in a new light. One of the world's leading tech investors showing how the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah's teachings inform her work with startup founders. How about a former reporter for ESPN reflecting on the Bible's lessons for having normal political opinions in a world gone crazy? So subscribe to the Good Faith Effort podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts and listen in to the inspirational, fun, crazy conversations with Ari Lam about the Bible's surprising role in Western society, you won't hear anywhere else. Also, our friend David Bonson has that book that I've been talking to you about, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, and boy, do we need it now. Look where we are. Look at the the gyrations of the economy. Look at the questions of whether or not we are going into recession or we're in a recession or coming out of a recession. Are we depreciating? Is inflation going to bedevil us for for a decade or is this inflation a cover, uh, sort of momentary cover for the deflationary spiral that the United States might be entering into? These are the kinds of subjects that are in that, that uh, we need to understand better. And that is what you get from David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, a daily primer on human flourishing, the economy, faith, and philosophy uh, with uh, quotes from the greatest philosophers, theologians, and uh, economic thinkers uh, in, in history. Please go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever, and get yourself a copy. Of David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. He knows wherever he speaks. He has three and a half billion dollars under management. People give him their money because they know he knows how to make it and how to understand how it works. And, uh, and all of that is uh, right there in There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Um, so the legitimacy crisis. So we have this, we're in this position now where Republicans are accused by Democrats of uh, of of undermining our democracy because so many of them believe that the 2020 election was stolen. And uh, and The New York Times did account something like one hundred and twenty elected officials or people who won primary so far, not just in, you know, congressional races, but at state and local races. And. Uh, openly say that the 2020, that that Biden is an illegitimate president, that the election was wrongly decided, that it was stolen. And um, this is a terrible thing. I agree that it's a terrible thing. But I have to say, in all of the land and in all of these conversations, there is very little said about the role, about how this conversation about electoral illegitimacy began. And it really began in 2000. And here's how it began. Uh, Crazy ballot in Palm Beach County, right? All these people voting for Pat Buchanan instead of, apparently instead of Al Gore in, 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 in Palm Beach County in 2000. And so uh, Florida is called for Bush. Uh, Gore, uh, concedes the election, and then a couple of hours later, unconcedes, says essentially that the result in Florida was illegitimate because the ballot was badly designed and uh, we were off to the races. But here is how Democrats handled the aftermath of 2020. What they decided to do was rather than say, okay, what we need is a statewide recount, or we need to just count every ballot, or we have to do... They wanted to recount only those areas and those counties in which they were confident they would prevail. The Bush campaign said, fine, you know, natural recount, less than a thousand votes, separate the two guys, recount the whole state. That's the law. Party of law says, okay, follow the law. Contested possible result, very confusing. And the Democrats made this very weird decision to oppose that method and to say, no, the problem is in Palm Beach County. What we need to do is count the hanging chads and try to interpret voter intent from the ballots that exist and sort of try to read the mind of the voter if they voted for all this. And what about the Chad? They didn't punch them all the way through all of that. And so. What they were saying was, look, clearly Gore won. He won. Look, we're all these Jews voting for Buchanan. Can't be. Uh, It's got to be that Gore won. And so the purpose of everything that's going on here is to enshrine the fact that Gore won. And efforts, when we do, when we count, have to be, the just result will be Gore being declared the winner of Florida and the president of the United States. So anything that goes to that goal, that makes that goal easier or makes that goal more achievable, that is the just approach. The unjust approach is to say there are rules. Here are the rules. Elections are run by rules. You know what? If the ballot's poorly designed, tough noogies can't help you. You know, Palm Beach County designed its ballot. That's how it works, and we got to follow the rules. And the rules say this was the count. Okay, so we'll do a recount. That's the also part of the rules statewide. However many counties there were, sixty-six or sixty-two or something like that, and we'll just we'll we'll go ahead. Not acceptable. And so, Paul Krugman, the intellectual apparatus of the Democratic Party and the liberal and progressive elites. All concluded that Bush was an illegitimate president. And that the decision, Bush v. Gore, that where the Supreme Court said, you just have to stop counting now. Got to stop counting. We counted. He's up by 530 votes or 900, whatever it was at that point. By the way, four different recounts statewide of every ballot by four different media institutions in the end over the course of 2001 showed that Bush prevailed. No, it doesn't matter, okay. Bush is an illegitimate president. That's where this all starts. Republicans said, okay, we'll follow the rules, recount. Gore and the Gore people say, no, we don't follow the rules. We can tell that Gore won and Bush didn't. And any result that comes in that doesn't show that will be an illegitimate result. Um, and then in 2004 came down to Ohio and again, something funky going on in Ohio, Mount Vernon, Ohio, the home of, uh, the home of Kenyon college, they didn't keep the polls open long enough. The polls weren't open late enough. Um, that was Christopher Hitchens, who was giving a speech that day said that basically Bush hadn't won the election in 2004 because college students uh you know couldn't get to the polls because they closed the ballots but but, you know they they closed them at uh, nine o'clock uh this kept going on over and over and over again right missouri this elections all over the place you have local officials democratic officials saying we're not keeping the polls that there's lines and people aren't getting to vote. You have to count every vote. Everyone who wants to vote has to be able to vote. Everyone has to, you know, it's like, okay, here are the rules. Polls are open from 6 p.m. to nine, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. You have 15 hours to vote, go vote. No. If you're online and you're you get there at five of nine, you should vote. That's it's not that that's not an illegitimate point. But basically, all elections were called into question on the basis of whether or not they they came to the result that people wanted. And then basically after like years of defending the legitimacy of elections, Donald Trump came along and said, "Yeah, you know what? If I don't win, it's all it's all screwed." He said it in 2016, remember? People asked him during debates, "Will you will you will you accept the results of the 2016 election?" And he said, "I'll tell you when the election results come in." But he didn't create this. It didn't come out of nowhere they created it it's there this is their condi- the conditionality of the notion that you know uh, institutions are fine and good as long as they give they provide the result that you want and that they're illegitimate if they don't that is not a republican disease that may be now an american disease but whatever whatever whoever introduced the disease to the body politic that was the democratic party i'm sorry that is absolutely and positively the truth that's my that's my spiel,
3: please respond. There's nothing to argue with there. I would only say that while profoundly cynical and dishonest uh, the democratic strategy to delegitimize uh, the the Bush administration in the first term and the second term to a lesser degree, but nevertheless um, <laughs> was. I think in ways overshadowed by the, it was procedural. The arguments were procedural. Um, and insofar as they were procedural, they involved the mechanisms of self-government. It was the 2012 election that we sacrificed all that, that we weren't talking about policy. The incumbent president would not talk about policy because the policy at, at issue was profoundly unpopular. Um, what they introduced into the bloodstream in 2012 was stuff that exists outside politics uh, and is, frankly, uh, unresponsive to political mechanisms. And Dan McLaughlin over at uh, National Review has a very good piece on this, how how the 2012 election deranged America. And it's a view that I've held for a very long time. Um, It was probably, if you're a Republican, you've had multiple radicalizations, but 2012 was one of your more formative radicalizations, at least if you're old enough to remember it. It was the year that gave us um, a, con- a concerted campaign to racialize every aspect of American society. It was the campaign that gave us the idea of dog whistles, uh, the notion because you know, I was at Mediaite at the time, so I had to watch MSNBC for 12 hours a day. And it was, this was the election that gave us the idea that words like apartment and constitution and golf were racist. Chicago, racist. Welfare, racist. Even the idea that you could run against Barack Obama, according to Chris Matthews, was racist. Um, it, it was an effort to delegitimize the, the, the very conduct of politics, outside procedural mechanisms, outside electoral mechanisms, um, that uh, I think radicalized a, a, a number of Republicans in ways that 2000 didn't. If the 2000s and 20, 2004 radicalized Democrats, 2012 radicalized Republicans, um, radicalized grassroots Republicans. And perhaps the establishment wasn't quick enough to recognize the sea change, but the sea change occurred over the course of that year, uh, and the reckoning followed tw- four years
1: later. And I, I-, I oh, I was just going to add to that the the, the failure of of. The mainstream media folks who love to hammer this point home now with regard to Trump and Republicans, the failure to acknowledge that there are people on their side who continue to have the same grift going, thinking here of Stacey Abrams and even Hillary Clinton, who multiple times in public has claimed that she was denied, you know, illegitimately denied the presidency. Um, And Stacey Abrams, who's the most egregious case, they are not they've never been called to account. And and it tends to be conservatives who who call those uh, call those out. And I think that's why when when you, when you look at a lot of the legitimacy discussions, that is why conservatives roll their eyes and go, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a problem. And I think, John, your your point that this is now vastly an American problem is correct. But the solutions we're going to have have to be depoliticized if we're actually going to solve them. And they have to be they do have to be procedural uh, safeguards that have to be changed.
3: I mean, if you're if you're you were witness to this situation in which this in, profoundly good human being, Mitt Romney, was you know pilloried, tarred branded a bully, branded homophobic, branded racist, um, and could not respond. Don't
1: forget sexist. He was and also sexist. with those binders yeah, yeah. full of women.
3: Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Yes. L- literally every, just about every cynical tactic was deployed here to tar this human being, make him into an anathema. And there's uh there's a dirty strategy there, but it is a strategy nonetheless, when you're facing a choice election that you want to make it into a referendum election and the referendum has to be on your opponent and the opponent has to be uh, tarred and pilloried and turned into a, a somebody who's an, an irresponsible, you know, alternative to the incumbent president. Nevertheless, political strategists, as we're seeing with, by the way, you know, talking about uh, the Maryland governor, Dan Cox, was one of the many MAGA candidates who've benefited from a handsome um, uh, dis- disbursement of Democratic funds. The Democratic Governors Association gave him a big leg up and they're they're defending this m- mystifyingly stupid strategy by saying there's no distinction between Republicans on the MAGA side and Republicans who are otherwise uh, cautious about embracing MAGA. They are all the same thing. They're all a fascist institution. So, of course, we're going to treat them all the same and not draw any distinctions. So don't expect anybody else to draw any distinctions. Republicans were confronted with the the destruction of a good man who was unable to respond in kind because he was too good to respond in kind. So they got the guy who was not a good man. Who wouldn't respond in kind? um, Um,
2: To to me, what really did it, though, what what what's sort of delivered us into the the, our our current status quo here is um, was the 2016 election. Um, The the campaign to prove that that was illegitimate, that Donald Trump's election was it was illegitimate. Deformed the country. That was the that was the fight that showed that you could just keep running with this charge. You can send it as high up the ladder as it will go. You can you can just infuse the media. Uh, uh, you, can, you can you can you can you can take our justice department and put them on the case. You could do you could just run with this, and and when when the results come in at every turn, that that no one, in fact. Uh, vladimir putin did not get donald trump elected you can ignore it you could say there's more you could say and and it it never has to end and it hasn't ended and and to me that 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 is that is the big one
0: that's exactly right uh, you know what else is right uh what's right is forget thread count that's what's right stop talking about thread count what matters is thread quality that's what you get from Bolin branch bone branch has those buttery breathable and impossibly soft sheets and why because the thread quality is unbelievable it doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible and you get the best threads possible from bowl and branch sheets made with threads so luxurious they're beloved by three u.s presidents they feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable so they're perfect for every season Bull and branch signature sheets come in nine neutral colors in all sizes from twin up to California King. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, hundred percent free from toxins, no pesticides formaldehyde or other harsh chemicals. And they fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all bowl and branch. Gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. The annual summer event is starting soon, but Bowl and Branch is giving my listeners exclusive early access before anyone else to 20% off with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. This is their best offer of the year before the holiday, so act now. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary for 20% off. And after you get out of those buttery breathable sheets and you got to start working, you're going to get into your X chair, get into that X chair. It's got that patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL that offers the ultimate customized support. It'll give you a massage if your back is hurting. It'll heat you up if you're cold and cool you down if you're hot. And now thanks to its new FS360 armrest, you can even adjust your armrest to the perfect Position all these unique X chair features, help the hours at your desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X chair. Go to Xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair commentary.com, or call 1 844 4X chair for $100 off your order. X chair is a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. X chair Okay, so um, we are. Uh, we got to go but uh, tomorrow night uh, the January 6th committee is having a hearing uh, and this is Noah's hearing because apparently what they're going to try to do is uh, lay out where and what was going on inside the White House and what Trump was doing during the hours uh, that the uh, riot was going on in January 6th and this gets to Noah's main uh, obsession about this which is why didn't who who finally called up the National Guard and the you know and the, the military to do something to stop the riot um,
3: and intercede to save the Capitol? Right? We'll see how they handle it. I'm looking forward to it. Benny Thompson has COVID, so he's not going to be on the dais. It's going to be Liz Cheney's hearing. So we're going to have Republicans talking about Republicans, which means MAGA is going to freak out because this is just all. This is the most democratic of Republican hearings you're ever going to hear. Uh, I hope they handle it well. I would just note that, you know, this Tony Ornato thing has not been resolved yet and it really can't be swept so under Tony the Tony Ornato
0: is the Secret Service agent who was deputy chief of staff to Trump. And Cassidy Hutchinson said that he's the one who told her that Trump had the fight with the Secret Service agent in the beast in the car saying he wanted them to drive him to the Capitol and that they had refused Tony Ornato through, through a spokesman denies that this happened. And that's what you're referring
3: and to. And was very willing to testify in public uh, initially, at least. Uh, there was a burst of bravado in the in early hours after that testimony. And we've yet to hear any progress on that. Now, I don't know whether that's the committee's lethargy or or Nato getting cold feet, but we subsequently have what you can only call a very conspicuous uh, development in the fact that uh USS. Has lost a lot it's of a secret text service text messages that are relevant to the events of January sixth. They were sent on January fifth and January sixth, and they were just—they're just gone. Even you know they're, they're performing a forensic uh, investigation into these devices, and they, there's very little uh, hope that they can actually get these these text messages, which is completely unconscionable. Uh, back to National Review, Kevin Williams has a good piece on this: how these agencies just sort of mysteriously lose and cleanse. You know, uh what with a cloth, you know, according to Hillary Clinton, but the these the the wiping of these uh this evidence, this is obstructive, uh, in ways that I don't think we can dismiss. And a lot of people put a lot of faith in the Secret Service, but anybody who's who's followed the Secret Service over the last decade knows this is an agency with a tendency to protect its members even at the expense of transparency and accountability. Uh, if you remember what happened in Caracas, you should probably Hold off a little bit before you reflexively defend this agency. Um, I want to see this resolved. I want to see the committee tackle this. And if somebody's dragging their feet, or if the committee is being obstructed, the committee needs to say as much. But they can't pretend that this is just going to go away. Uh, and
0: and uh, two things to mention: so two people are going to apparently testify: uh, Sylvia Matthews, who was uh, in the White Communications Office, and Matt Pottinger. Matt Pottinger was the Deputy National Security Advisor. Is I have to say one of the most impressive Americans of the last twenty years. Go read up on him because we don't have time to lay it out. But um, a man of unimpeachable integrity and you know somebody who defended this country with his uh, with his body and his life um, and in Afghanistan and in Iraq and uh, and and needs to be taken very seriously depending on what it is that he has to say uh, tomorrow. And um, but I will say this, which is that uh, the one real caveat about everything that's going on was this crazy thing that Zoe Lofgren said, uh, after, uh, uh Pat Cipollone, the white house counsel testified and, uh, was apparently not asked to confirm things that Cassie Hutchinson, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff's assistant had, had testified to. And then she said, we're not here to corroborate anything, which, um, if that's the case, then, uh, maybe they don't want to talk to, uh, renato because they don't need to corroborate anything they're just happy to have they had they got the news they got the they got the news explosion from cassie hutchinson that they wanted and they don't want to muddy the picture and that's bad uh because the this should they should not be you know they should not be playing those kinds of political games even though they apparently they have all determined that trump you know should you know should hang for this and Metaphorically speaking, and it's not that I disagree, but that is not what—that's not how they should be pursuing this. And so, we'll see what happens. I don't—I don't hold that much hope that it's going to seem that fair tomorrow. If fairness is your watchword, I don't know why Trump gets to be treated fairly when he never treated any other human being fairly. But fine. So that's—that's that's where we are. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, for Abe, No, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.